Hi there, listeners. Just a reminder, all co-hosts of the Arbitration Station appear on it in their personal capacities. So please do not attribute statements to or take legal advice from what is said on this informal podcast. Thank you. Hello, welcome to the Arbitration Station. Hello, Brian. Hello, Sadia. Hello, hello. Wow, someone's back. I know. Who is this? I know. Have I quit the podcast? Have I not quit the podcast? I prefer. Don't use that word. Don't use the Q word. It's too strong. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Pause and unpause. (laughs) No, but I have a real job now. I'm a real boy now. And oh I my don't gosh. understand how you guys have been doing it. Working that is so first. condescending to two other people who are not like private practitioners, as if like being an academic or a secretary of a tribunal is not a good job. It's a real job. Don't say that. Yes. No, no, no. It was a joke. <laughs> Obviously, I have I'm not kidding. been uh, unemployed up until this point, but it is a different kind of reality with, with a different kind of sets of expectations that I'm still trying to adapt to. So I, I have been checking out the bit. Hope check in a bit more but and yeah, you're um, a real tired boy now that's what you're yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm having fun though uh i i will say uh, i now work for honored importer uh, as international arbitration advisor and i am enjoying it it's, it's an extraordinary team and i think to count your points Sadia, although my previous jobs were obviously real jobs they were solitary endeavors yes. to a large yeah. extent and now i'm part of a, a team and it is such a rewarding thing to work with people who are smarter than you and yeah and solve problems on a daily basis as opposed to draft this thing see you in three months that both academia and tribunal right. secretary work mm. was basically all about <laughs> it's not nice drafting in a hole i have to say it's um that's kind of why we pushed to get an office so quickly with our firm was that the walking into other people's rooms and like exchanging ideas is is really helpful. Yeah, that's uh, always the the complaint also that we get from our junior associates that with the on the working from home debate debate, right? Is mm. uh, in fact people like to come in because it's really hard to have these exchanges virtually in fact. I um, mean you can try, but it's not the same thing. It's it works if you like the three of us already have an established exactly relationship physical relationship yeah. and you've met and then, then you can do things like a podcast remotely yeah occasionally yeah <laughs> that's true that's true but we're spurring into a whole other debate Indeed. so jewel why why are you joint giving us the grace of your presence today i'm sure there's a reason it's because we're reading books <laughs> because the arbitration station book club is back on that's the only thing Woo-hoo! that can always lure me back it's going to be an interesting experience. Why don't we jump into the book review discussion right away? Let's All right. do it. Let's do it. I don't think we've done a proper book review since end of season three. I'm looking at you, Brian, because it may even have been predating... Sadia. Yeah, yeah, it was predating Sadia. It was dealing in virtue, right? That was the only. No, no, come on, guys. We didn't we do? Oh, sorry, sorry. That wasn't a book club. That was an interview. Uh, Jan Paul's interview. Yes, that's true. But we did also read. It wasn't really a book. We we read his article for the book club. 
uh, arbitration without privity That's at some right. point too. That's there have right. been a few, but dealing in virtue is a good starting point for what we're talking about today. But I'm going to have to first defer to Sadia because I uh, think I can count in a double digit number the amount of times people have come up to me and complain about my pronunciation of Emmanuel Gaillard. <laughs> <laughs> it's better now. You're not pronouncing the D, which is good. Yes, but I am envisioning a similar problem with the author of the book that we're talking about today. Oh, go for it. Butcher it. It's in, in English, it would be Michael Skinazzi, but I'm sure Sadia will correct me. I don't know how to pronounce his name in French. Skinazzi? No. I don't know. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mike. Let's say Michael. I don't know if it's Shinazi or Skinazi because it's obviously not. Um, I mean, I'm saying obviously, I don't know, but it doesn't sound like a French name, the French last name. So. In any event, <laughs> Michael or Mikael has written a book called The Three Ages of International Commercial Arbitration, which is, I think, based on his PhD thesis. Mm -hmm. Which he uh, did with Emmanuel Gaillard. Correct. Indeed, and he is today a practicing lawyer, uh, but it is a very interesting book that we have all read, unlike the Dealing in Virtue segment, which, as I recall, was me having read the book and Brian having read two Spontaneous book reactions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the high school a shortcut when you read a book review and then summarize the book based on someone else's summary. Mm -hmm. This time we've all read at least most of the book. I have to um, confess, I've read parts of it. I have to confess, but I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> As the title suggests, it's about the history of international commercial arbitration. I think that's important at the outset. For once, we will not be talking about investment treaty arbitration, right. really, mm -hmm. at all. And dealing in virtue is a good jump-off point, as we mentioned in the introduction. Uh, if you recall, that's a book from 1996, I think, a sociological study of, of uh, how international commercial arbitration developed and I think to a certain extent, Skinazzi's book uh, sort of reassesses dealing in virtue. Our diligent listeners and really any uh, moderately well-read arbitration lawyer will know that dealing in virtue describes the development in the 20th century of arbitration as, uh, if not a conflict, then uh, a process between a generation of grand old men Mm -hmm. primarily continental European French-speaking professors who were, as the title of the book, that book suggests, they were dealing in virtue. They were virtuous, judge-like figures who occasionally, often, worked for free because arbitration was considered a calling. They were then, over time, replaced by a, a younger generation of technocrats, professionalized arbitration lawyers that were, at the time the Dealing in Virtue book was written, this generation was a young and aspiring cohort of old men, almost exclusively men, the people we now think of as the founding fathers of, of the modern professionalized arbitration, Jan Paulson, the Vandenberg, the Beckstiegels, the Browers mm. of the arbitration world. Kinazi's book has a much wider scope than Dealing in Virtue, which really only talked about the like, last few decades of the 20th century. Uh, this book, I think, adds more history to what its author says is a simplified account in dealing in virtue of, of how arbitration came about. And I think there were in-betweens, of, of course, between dealing in virtue and his book, there were some other attempts of either criticism or development of what Desiree and Gertz 
you know, analysis was uh, one of them was on our podcast, Florian Grisel, uh, who had uh, the evolution sociology of arbitration. And he does mention Grisel, actually, in the introduction of his book. And there's this concept of secant marginals. Do you remember who? So it's individuals who, while being members of multiple social groups, national, ethnic, professional, do not develop a sense of primary identity or exclusive loyalty with regard to any one of these groups. And um, basically all of us. <laughs> right. I think that's an important layer at, that adds a lot of understanding to the development of arbitration because you could read Dealing in Virtue as a slightly reductionary binary conflict between old continental Europe owing its allegiance to civil law traditions and the modern professional American law mm -hmm. firm Anglo-Saxon traditions. And I think Grisel's point, I wasn't in this conversation, but I read some of his work, is, is that it, in, at least in the more modern sense, most key individuals and the identity of the community isn't easily reduced to binaries because most modern arbitration lawyers don't view themselves as French lawyers or American lawyers. They view themselves as arbitration lawyers and they are have studied yeah. and qualified in different jurisdictions. They speak many languages. And to a certain extent, that was true also for older generations. I think he mentions a lot of the key individuals in the, the grand old man generation were Jewish refugee lawyers who for mm -hmm. different reasons had to leave uh, their home countries in the 20s, 30s and 40s and ended up being sort of cosmopolitan, metropolitan lawyers and starting the foundation. But we're getting off track. Let's start by just, uh, in a simplified way, summarize the key arguments in Skinazzi's book, and then we can discuss some of them. He uses a concept of renewal and anxiety as a, a, an analytical lens to describe how arbitration has developed. It's In one sense, it's like a pendulum swing, if you look at the history of arbitration, between phases of renewal and phases of anxiety. But it's also, I think, at any given point in history, two opposite ends of a spectrum. If you jump into 1994, or today for that matter, I guess, different people within the community will feel that they are on different ends of the spectrum between renewal and, and anxiety. And he uses three different ages. Again, much broader, wider lens than uh, the authors of Dealing in Virtue. And these three ages of arbitration are First, the age of aspiration, which very broadly coincides with what in general history is often referred to as the, the long 19th century. And Skinazzi is, I think, uh, for good reason and, and very consciously pointing out that you can't just pick a, a scale of dates and say that period started on that date and ended on that date. So he's kind of vague, but we're essentially talking about the 1800s leading up until maybe 1920 or the First World War, that's the age of aspiration. And then aspirations on many levels were kind of damaged by the First World War, as we know. The second age is the age of institutionalization. That's from the 1920s onwards through to, I think, the late 1950s. And this is a time when arbitration is institutionalized, when the ICC, which I suspect we will have reason to return to, mm -hmm. as the the agent, really, that, that drove a lot of arbitration developments was founded in the early 1920s, mm -hmm. as was the AAA, the American Arbitration Association, as was the SEC in Stockholm. Yes. Um, so this is when we start to see institutions that are established and also a lot of treaties and rules and soft law that, that come into play, trying to formalize the rules for arbitration. Mm -hmm. And the end of the 1950s is, is the end of what Skinazzi calls the age of institutionalization. 
that's no coincidence because at the end of the 1950s, we get the, the Bible of arbitration, the key founding instrument, which is the New York Convention. Mm. And then starting with the New York Convention, and I think leading up to where we are today, we're in the age of autonomy from the late 1950s. This is where arbitration really finds its own, both as a community and as a legal field, where we have debates about Lex Mercatoria, this general French-developed, I think, concept about universal rules that are transnational and the law of international business in many mm-hmm. different iterations. We also have the whole delocalization debate that was a big thing, and also in French scholarship. Mm. Um, and we have the the founding cases and ideas of arbitration as we know it. The Gaia scholarship, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And to a certain extent, our favorite phrase, pro-arbitration, is also mm. very uh, frequently mentioned explicitly and implicitly in this age, but also earlier. I think in many ways, this is a book on the history of pro-arbitration and how forces throughout history have tried to ensure that arbitration uh, works often in opposition against state jurisdictions and local mm-hmm. courts and, okay. and more municipal interests. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, I think, with age of autonomy, now that we've established the basic framework, is not just the law, is getting more autonomous, not just the New York Convention and Lex Mercatoria and all these theoretical debates about the the scope and implications of arbitration procedure, but the field, us, we are also getting more and more autonomous. And here we are really in the dealing in virtue time all of a sudden um, with the the different sense of, of community that they described in there. They interviewed a lot of people. And I learned my new favorite word. I don't know if you picked up on this reading. Mercatocracy? Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) It's a very good word that I love. A mercatocracy, I think, as as you can tell uh, from from the merca part of the word, is um, the the trade, the business community and its interests. Mm -hmm. And I think whereas meritocracy for example i know i had to read it three times yeah is that that meritocracy no mercatocracy mercatocracy and it's i don't think it's a skinazi invention the mercatocracy but it's to me it's new and i I googled and whereas meritocracy gets a gazillion hits on google mercatocracy gets about 700 hits so it's not a well-established idea but it is a useful lens through which to discuss arbitration i think another scholar who I failed to note down the name of, and I apologize for that, has defined mercatocracy as elite associations of public and private organizations engaged in the unification and globalization of transnational merchant law. Mm-hmm. That's basically the definition he adopts. And and just to bring it full circle to the beginning of what you said about anxiety versus renewal, that's the parallel um, so the anxiety is the state involvement, the territorialism, and then the renewal is always the input of the mercatocracy. Um, so that's kind of where he ends up in his conclusions on how this tension can find itself. And the link with um, with Desalegert, isn't it that the mercatocracy 
actors are the managers, but the Disneyland card called the managers with a big M, like all the the basically those private practitioners that were shaping um, mm-hmm. private international law. Right, and I think in many ways it's not necessarily implicit either in their book or in this one, mm-hmm. but in many ways the mercatocracy also overlaps with the Americans. Huh? <laughs> Maybe that's me. <laughs> capitalism yeah (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) but also now obviously in modern days the arbitration community as such which is far from synonymous right with americans Mm -hmm. one thing that struck me and i would be interested in hearing your takes is that because the icc and we can return soon to to the icc's role and throughout two of these three ages of arbitration it is in France, and many of these scholarly debates are in France. Genazzi is French. Desalin mm-hmm. are at least one of them, is French. This is a, you, you could argue it. The devil's advocate's argument is this is a book about the French perspective on international mm-hmm. arbitration. Yeah. You agree? He also says in the beginning that he had kind of uh, extreme access to the ICC court and those awards. And so obviously that shaped the analysis there. Yeah. I mean, even, even so absolutely. I think, I think he, he mentions this at the beginning, of course, like Brian says that he had to make a choice. Uh, But not only is it, I think French focused because of the ICC and because obviously of his own, um, I think the uh, thesis director, (laughs) I think that inevitably had an impact. And I think we can also say that he is working now for Gaillard, Benefitemi, and Shelbayas. It's kind of like he's part of that school, he's part of that practice, and so on. And he is based in Paris. But I think there's also a very European-focused, you know, point of view in his historic because it's a historical approach that he's taking right he says he's filling the gap but there was no history of international commercial arbitration it is very very eu focused which he acknowledges uh and because it's based also on the data available i suppose uh mm-hmm. but it would be interesting to get a you know a reaction from a historical perspective from from other parts uh, of the world uh than europe um even if you know all the history, the way it's written, you have a feeling that it does come, all of it comes from the EU. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in the, I was in Istanbul last week and there was a keynote by Patrick Purcell, who uh, all of you may know, who's brilliant, by the way, brilliant speaker. Gosh, it was the first time I was listening to him. He's a partner at ANO. And he his keynote was an open invitation to, um, and it was called an open invitation, and it was to kind of rethink arbitration in times of crises. And his historical approach was, you can guess, from uh, because he's based in D.C., he started from 1923 in New York, you know, <laughs> uh, where arbitration circles at the time, uh, they were trying to, you know, uh, find legitimacy of international uh, commercial arbitration at the time. And he referred to, you know, all the the newspapers and all the, you know, actors at the time who were promoting arbitration and so on. So I, I do think there's a link as to the person telling the history mm. and the perspective you get. Um, 
And similarly, I'm sure if Muhammad, uh, you know, Professor Muhammad Al Wahab was was speaking, he always starts by saying, "Oh, you know." In uh, I remember his he did a speech at L the LCIA and he was like two thousand five hundred years before Christ. So we're not even thinking, <laughs> we're not even talking about you know the twentieth yeah. or even the nineteenth century that that, that Mikael has emphasized. He's like in Egypt. That's how you would settle disputes, commercial disputes through arbitration. Um, and so it's a very ancient time and so on and so forth. So I do think it's a very small part of the history of, of commercial arbitration, even though I'm not saying it's not an important contribution and it's not a, a very well you know written book with lots of references. But yes. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I, I agree with you. And I wouldn't say it, it's a critique on the writing because the what kind of the focus is, as Joel, you pointed out in your in your framework of this book is that you you kind of hinge it on the New York Convention, right, as kind of this turning point. And then if you s scroll that back, then you get into the Geneva Protocol, the Geneva Convention, the ICC Court in 1923. And then you have so if you roll it back that way, then you get back to okay, well, what that was the renewal or that yeah, that was the renewal. But if you go back to the anxiety before that, then you have France saying that um, the French law did not recognize an arbitration agreement. So it does make logical sense how it's progressed. And if you use the New York Convention as your linchpin on how we have gotten into modern concepts of arbitration, I think I think the the focus is is a good one. Yeah, and there's a huge focus also on this. I think there's a chapter or two on on this um, the approach taken by courts on um, enforcing uh, awards that have been set aside at the seat of the court. I mean that yeah. is a, a case study of what. You know, of course, it's relevant for people uh, working in France, right? I mean, it's a it's a very um, unique approach taken by the French courts, and mm. and it and that kind of is linked to that. Oh, it's transnational, and and it's the, the delocalization, the gaiardization, yeah. the gaiardization of arbitration. That's a nice word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, but it, but it's interesting that going back to your. A reference to Persol's keynote in Istanbul and, and how in New York, you know, the arbitration had to be sold internally as well as externally, you know, and by internally, I mean within a country as much as on an international level. It really is striking, even going back to this, to the first age when arbitration was mostly about, you know, peace mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and trying to, Stability, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. But even at that stage, arbitration had to be sold. And I think that's such an interesting. Yeah, aspect that we also talked about when we talked about dealing in virtue, if I recall correctly, that tax lawyers don't have to sell tax law as an idea and constitutional no. lawyers don't have to sell the constitution as an idea because constitutional law will be there, tax law will be there. Arbitration lawyers, since the get-go, or at least since the 1800s, have always had to sell the idea of arbitration as an alternative to other means of dispute resolution. So while we're all working in it, we're also simultaneously engaged in promoting it and selling it and explaining it. And who do we justify. have to sell it to? The states, yeah, the well, everyone, the users, the states. Um, I think um, the if you want buy-in from third parties as well, and um, you know the backlash that you were having against arbitration is not only against investment treaty. I mean, in France, there's this whole thing after the FRTP, uh that you know recent Malaysian crazy mm -hmm. <laughs> proceedings. Um, all of this, um, you know, that award against Nigeria, this was all commercial arbitrations as well. So I think you you 
you always have to respond to the backlash. And on this, I'm just going to say something because I, I heard that I saw this just recently. Um, there was a, a talk by Steve Jobs at the time he was talking about marketing, about how do you sell a product? And, uh, you know, he was talking about, of course, Apple products at the time. And when he came back uh, with the computer and the phone, he wasn't selling like a computer or a phone. He was selling like change, you know, like how Apple changes stuff and contributes to the well-being of people and how it's revolutionary. Or when Nike, you know, started selling, uh, changing its ads, it was like, you know, oh, we're bringing freedom or whatever it was, you know, for all the, it wasn't just shoes, it was something else. And I feel like in arbitration, we're doing exactly the same thing. We're like, oh, look, you know, we're promoting diversity and, and you know, regulating AI and we're, um, you know, always, and, peace, always peace. and peace and peace, of course, peace, peace, peace was the original thing, of course, but we're contributing to change by doing that you know so the green arbitration all of this it's like we're mm. the good <laughs> bringing the good <laughs> and then comes the backlash yeah <laughs> well and this yeah. is sorry go ahead i was gonna ask i was gonna change track so you go ahead Brian. no no, no i was gonna go to the conclusion because that was um what i thought was interesting but go ahead i was gonna ask you about your, your icc take because there are quite a few chapters devoted to the icc and and the ICC as a, as a proxy, really, for the general development of arbitration. I, I was thinking about Taylor St. John's book about the, the origin of, of ICSID, mm -hmm. which is really the origin of investor state arbitration and how so many forces, formal and informal, were flowing through the ICSID secretariat in establishing investment treaty arbitration. And that there hadn't until this book really been a general study of international commercial arbitration. But it's interesting to see how the ICC, at least in, in Skenazia's account, from the 20s and onwards, really was even more, arguably, than ICSID in the investment treaty sphere, was like the one place where all, all forces came together. Did you find that convincing? And also, did we learn anything new? Yeah, I mean, as I kind of hinted at before my comments, I did find it convincing um, because we're, you're leading right after World War I. Um, having to deal with kind of like the unification and getting independent from states and resolving these disputes and um, creating a organization that's made up of private industry leaders in order to kind of be the the leaders of this change. And then, as I said, that led into the creation of the court, these protocols that were like the fledgling um, babies of the New York Convention and ICA as well. You know, I, I yeah. kind of I saw all of this and I was telling Joel before we started recording that the ICC actually moved to Sweden during World War II. So ah, it was like, it was like this little uh, safe zone that for international trade that was like, okay, let's bring it into the, the another country that can keep it safe. And after that was when, when ICA was born. And then you had the preliminary draft convention on enforcement that was actually drafted by the ICC. Um, right. So you have... I think there is. Um, and, and that's where they brought in fewer references to national law. And because before that, in the Geneva Protocol, it was, you had, to, it was basically double execution. So you had, it, it, you had to also have it be valid in the law of the sea um, when you enforced it. And so this is basically, and it still had on top of that, the New York Convention, kind of nine conditions they had mm -hmm. called it. And that kind of wheedled, was wheedled it down into the Article five uh, grounds. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you use 
yeah, if you use the New York convention as the reason, and a lot of users do, right? That's kind of, if you're talking about marketing and selling, you're like, you now have this document that you can run around the world and get your money. That's yeah. You know, the prize pig for these multinational mm-hmm. enterprises. So I would say it's uh, it was convincing for, for me, at least. And Conclusion. sorry, I'm sure you think it's, you know, the best yeah, thing that's ever happened. That, that's <laughs> not, that's <laughs> not, we shouldn't ask the it, Mad, Madam Ambassador, <laughs> the French representative on the committee. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, uh, no, it's, it's, I, I thought it was really interesting as well. But again, you know, um, the perspective um, of of you know the role that had the ICC has played in the shaping and the institutions have played in shaping commercial arbitration. I mean, you it's it's of course you can't you can't deny that. Um, but I'd be interested. I would have been interested to um, also have maybe a comparative approach, a comparing with other jurisdictions mm-hmm. than the European one, just to see how they stand in terms of. I agree, but as a former PhD student myself, I have to also in solidarity say that this it's it's a very solid piece of work and he's very transparent as we've yeah. already yeah, addressed no, no, no. With, with where it's going. And so the like, oh great job, but you could also have done this and this and this great job as a as an academic is the least favorite. Yeah. That's the, that's my French approach. It's like mm, you know, just finding the the thing that you can you can criticize. <laughs> Listen, I liked it a lot because he referred to Bourdieu who I love, who's a French sociologist. Um, and because Bourdieu was the origin also, was also where the concepts that was used to say that uh, by Dezere and Gert uh, to talk about the international legal field as such and mm. to, to use it as an object of study. And I thought I really liked um, the way he, he dived into, um, you know, the whole, his research, at least, uh, I, I thought the approach he took was was very intelligent. There's not a lot of books out there. Are you know you're right uh, when you mention it, um, Joel. After dealing in virtue, in fact, dealing in virtue was written by two sociologists, so they were not practitioners. I think afterwards, uh, Florian Grisel is the same. He's an academic. He's not a practitioner. Um, of course, there was Gaillard's book. You know, uh, on the philosophy of, of arbitration and sociology of arbitration, but you don't have a lot of those contributions from from academics slash practitioners. Um, so I, I thought I thought that was really good as well. The perspective taken. Agreed, Brian. Conclusions and also what we can learn today. <laughs> well, um, to you know, pull this full circle, the pendulum swing at the very end of the book and the general conclusion, he talks about. Um, well, what, what are we, we had renewal, right? So we had a, a renewal phase of arbitration, but now, and he cites Akmiya, um, and, and other <laughs> cases about the, the anxiety that's coming in with kind of the right to regulate and focused it a bit on investment treaty arbitration, mm-hmm. um, and wondering whether this is going to be a renewal or whether we're going to call it an age of disruption. So whether it's going to develop or whether it's going to be completely disrupted. And I think that's right. Um, I think that's where we do find ourselves. Are we going to have um, this anxiety and the right to regulate and how we're going to um, adapt to that? And that's really going to the state and mercatocracy tension that we talked about earlier. He hopes in the end that there won't be an age of disruption, but I think there's some people who would appreciate an age of disruption. And you know, we see that with 
um, people exiting their their BITs. You see mm-hmm. that you know this kind of state taking over their sovereignty a bit more, and what's going to be the birth of that, um, whether it be an, you know an arbitral court or something like that. But um, he he does not want an age of disruption essentially. But I think there may be some promoters for that in the field. Yeah, I think I mean regardless of the normative value, we're we're kind of in one. Yeah, as, as, a, as a factual matter, I think it's convincing that we're in the nature of disruption. And and Patrick Pasol's keynote and the, the 500 other keynotes we've heard in the last five years from you know, Gary winter, winter is, is coming. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that there is a a struggle with, with broad bush, brushes. There's a, a struggle between the arbitration community and other forces, such as not just the EU Commission and not just the European Court of Justice, but other national courts and states and legislatures and, and other entities that, that are sort of pushing back uh, also in the commercial arbitration field. So mm-hmm. maybe you know, 50 years from now, a book like this would have a, a fourth age that starts some time around now or I don't know, five years ago, the, the TTIP negotiations. I don't know what will, will, yeah. be, will be the starting point for this, but things think, are changing. I, I think it's also linked to, inevitably, we try to have... Um a view of things that is very legal. But if you look at things in the political landscape that we yeah. are right now compared to in the 20s or or when the institutions of Bretton Woods or, or the World Bank and so on, it's we're not in a period of, of peace, <laughs> you know. No, I mean, we're, we're, actually, uh, we're actually in, in, in war even in mm. the West. And obviously yeah, exactly. we, we know about Brexit and populism yeah. and the WTO being blocked by the US. I mean, we can give 5,000 examples to suggest that even beyond yeah. arbitration, times yeah. have changed quite a lot in the last handful of years. Yeah, and the economic standards have changed. I mean, you can see nationalization, protectionism, not only in Latin America or Africa or elsewhere, but in in the West, exactly, um, who are pushing for the reform as we speak. So, yeah, we'll revisit yeah. this. Michael, Mikael is young. well done. It was well great, done, but we might, we we might need an update uh, when he is, you know, sixty. To see what, what, another what age, yeah, another age. <laughs> well, Joel, thanks for introducing part two of the book club. This is great. Yeah, Joel, uh, it's thank part you. Six or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah come on, we've yeah, done. Okay, it. let's. Yeah. Uh, okay. Happy fun time. All right. You will recall, dear listener, that when we opened this season, Sadia asked ChatGPT to write a promo for an arbitration podcast, and one came out, and it actually was based not on one generic arbitration podcast, but the robot even used arbitration station specifically. Mm-hmm. But it ended on an interesting note. Can't remember if you guys recall, but it ended with, buckle up because it's time to get arbitraged. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't even make sense, sir. No, and we didn't really address oh, that. Oh, does it? <laughs> it, it? It made me think, oh, I've heard this before. And then we started talking about it internally. I think uh, a mutual friend of ours sent a photo of a pub in England called the Arbitrager or something. Yeah. And I had a conversation with a former student from Eastern Europe who doesn't work in this field anymore, who kept referring to arbitration as arbitrage. And I realized this has happened consistently throughout my career in this field without realizing that people think arbitration is arbitrage, or at least mix up the words. 
which makes me wonder what is arbitrage and who has the better brand is arbitration less well known in the general population than arbitrage well first off yeah. just before we get into that debate may i make something clear because we just established in the earlier uh, segment of this podcast that France invented international commercial arbitration. I don't think that was established, but sure, I'll, I'll, I'll grant uh, you that for the sake of argument. S'il vous plaît, s'il vous plaît, okay? There was Adam and Eve and Jean-Pierre. And voilà, Jean-Pierre, JP, and arbitration, of course, is uh, arbitrage. En français. And in Spanish, arbitraje. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure in other languages as well. So... I think in Russian too, and most Slavic languages. I know Jan, our editor who's Czech, mentioned that it is in Slavic languages tends to be the same thing. But in English, this conversation makes sense for English speakers. Not so much for, because the French are like, what was it? Sadia, so you mean that, that it is the very same word describing, well, let's start with what, what is yeah, arbitrage okay. as when it's in English. In it's, English. It's, it's, yeah, it's something about taking advantage of price fluctuations and different, at different points in time to, to make profit. Or am I sorry yep. for not being, yeah. You basically quoted what Bing has just written to me, so you got it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what did Bing write you? Arbitrage is the practice of taking advantage of a difference in prices in two or more markets, striking a combination of matching deals to capitalize on the difference, the profit being the difference between the market prices at which the unit is traded. And this is like a legitimate thing that people work in, right? There are people who work in arbitrage. You, you can say yeah, that you're yeah. in arbitrage, but you're in finance then. Or, yeah. But your, your sub-specialization is in arbitrage. So people trade. Yes, it's a trade thing. Arbitrage. Yeah, like currencies, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, Sadia, that in French, and we're guessing many other languages, that practice is is talked about with the very same word as arbitration. Well, actually, now you're making me that I don't know how, how you say arbitrage, the English term. Because I think finally, now that we now we're, that we're just talking out loud, I think in Swedish <laughs> you would you would use the word arbitrage, like the the French word as a, as a borrowed word to describe. Uh, uh, taking advantage of different whatever. I don't think we have a word in Swedish for it. I think we borrow the French word. Yeah, it might be like fax machine. Yeah, exactly. Fax. <laughs> yeah, arbitrage. I don't know if there's a separate word in French, to be honest. I do not know. Uh, I should. But let me ask you this. Have you experienced the same? Do you share my impression that people confuse you and what you do for arbitrage? Oh, uh, not the actually what we do, but the the terminology, absolutely. Also, not to put a spanner in the works of your subject, arbitrator. Everyone who works in arbitration is called an arbitrator for the non for the non users or non practitioners. That's true. An arbitrator is is a, a, an arbitration person, right? Re- regardless of what they do. Oh, what you're an arbitrator. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, to, in our fields, it's a very specific thing that very few people actually are. Right. And that, to your point about arbitrage, is an English problem, because uh, in Swedish, that's not an issue. True. Uh, Good point. Uh, there are a lot of people, when I say I'm into arbitration, they think I'm into sports arbitration. Or <laughs> oh, that's not bad. Like an arbitrator. Do you say that's arbitrator? Uh, no, how do you say in English? The arbitre in a football game. Yeah. Umpire. 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 Yeah. Well, it's, the, it's arbitre in French. Or referee, yeah. Oh, which makes sense, yeah. Mm. But I think, didn't Jan 
our editor and producer, publisher, whatever, like that his father in law, who I think is is Japanese, still yeah. thinks that that Jan actually works in arbitrage, not just the oh yeah, just the language confusion, but also substance confusion. Oh, and that Jan right. is, at this point, is basically playing along because it's just too complicated to explain. <laughs> arbitration law actually is. <laughs> He's asking him questions about what he should trade, and Jan's like, yeah. hmm. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> Well, Should we do anything about him. this? I feel like yeah. it's uh, if if any if, if if it's incumbent on anyone to address this, it's a big arbitration podcast. I don't know how we how we overcome this branding problem that we have. That people should we so call our podcast the International Arbitrage Podcast? I think that would undermine the <laughs> as a joke. No, well, it's definitely the name of this episode. I know yeah, that that's now. True. <laughs> get arbitraged i don't know yeah. about arbitrage but I, with arbitrator i think and i have this trouble as well like finding a a unique term to call what we do like a litigator what's the what's mm -hmm. the what's this what's the equivalent in arbitration it depends a lot on the context though doesn't it like mm. what level of familiarity however minuscule can you expect from the person that you're talking to yeah. If you're with other lawyers, you can say maybe arbitration, or at least, you know, I'm a disputes lawyer. Right. But if you're like at a cocktail party and you're the only lawyer there, we'll stop. <laughs> party. What, a garden party. I don't know what yes, that's yes. a garden party. No, I'm more. just, I just, it's just funny because there was this, this whole episode on how you loathed, you know, all these cocktail parties and this, oh, I know, I know this. I know. <laughs> all right, pick your venue of socialization with the general public, Sadia. I don't know. I go to cocktail parties multiple times. I know. I just saw you at one. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I don't use the word arbitration. If I'm speaking to, you know, extended family or I'm meeting someone yeah, no. who has no access disputes. to our world. International yeah, even that, disputes. Yeah, I'm, yeah, exactly. International disputes or, or just I'm a lawyer. You just say I'm a lawyer. I don't do this because then I get all these immigration <laughs> oh, really? questions. Not to give any indication of my um, the people I hang out with. <laughs> but <laughs> just so, what do you say then, Sadia? No, I I'm specific. I say I do international disputes, and then okay. they're like looking at me, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a lawyer. I'm an international lawyer, but I do international disputes because you know when you say you're a lawyer, people just they just don't know the different. They just think you're a transactional lawyer, you or know, like criminal, you're yeah. criminal or immigration, or you do, you know. Uh, maybe it's actually you can help them with their loans, or <laughs> maybe a shortcut is to just say you work in arbitrage. Then That's it. That's really nice. So then you don't get any questions anymore. Yeah. It's so annoying though, being like, "What do you do? I'm a lawyer. What kind of lawyer?" Yeah, uh, exactly. International arbitration. Oh, do you that? do litigation in front of the courts? Mm, not exactly. Not exactly. Yeah. Wait, I don't understand. Are you English qualified? But you're based in London. Um. Well, you can be. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not. How does that work? You work for a French firm. Wait, what? So you do French law all the time? Not very. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just shut up and move on to the next person. Exactly. Why are you doing those conferences? What? Are you a teacher? <laughs> Do you even work? Yeah, exactly. We're, we're Wait, you all... have a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> we are clearly, though, all of us members of the mercatocracy. I think that's, that summarizes the conference. Let's just so. say that. Let's say that. I'm a member of the mercatocracy. <laughs> that sounds good. I can't say that word. It's too difficult. Mercatocracy. I can't say it. Can you say? Bad, mercatocracy. Okay. I'll have to. Go. Yeah.
All right, we haven't really resolved anything. I might add the like the the official dictionary definitions of arbitrage and arbitration next to one another in the episode notes. I think you then, should because I wonder if a lot. Of, yeah, I I wonder if a lot of people know actually that this this difference. So that mm. would be that would be very good. And if anyone has an elevator pitch, we can use that cocktail parties on what how to describe our profession please email us at the arbitration station at gmail.com so we know there's a there's a sorry just there's a movie called arbitrage isn't there and somebody sent it to me and they're like ah oh, look at this with oh, really? uh, richard gear yeah have you seen it's from like 2012 or something i actually yeah. recognize this yeah he's a banker he's very much not exactly he's word, very yeah. much <laughs> an arbitrageist Arbi- <laughs> the problem is that in french we say arbitragist I no. think so. You know, I mean, who says that? I guess no. <laughs> it sounds like a 1980s thing. I know, but since the French created everything, you know, it's, yeah. Uh... Okay, this is where we stop. Thank you very much. This has been nice. <laughs> no more space for French propaganda on this podcast. We'll end Talk this with the French national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great episode, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Ah, so uh, see, Jewel, we need you more. No, not that I'm saying that it's not fun with you, Brian. It is. <laughs> <laughs> That's me hitting my head. I know. I was like, <laughs> yeah. all right, until next time. I guess. Okay, great, guys. Love this speaking to you. Bye.